This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. There are not many 800-page books that I would describe as page-turners, but I do think that the 848-page book that Ambassador Dennis Ross published back in 2004 does fit that description. His book is called The Missing Piece and it chronicles his rather extraordinary efforts over a 12-year period to broker peace deals between Arabs and Israelis. Ambassador Ross is one of the most consequential diplomats of his generation, and his last government job was with the Obama administration, which he served until 2011, when he stepped down to be a full-time fellow here at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Ambassador Ross it's a pleasure to have you on the program. It's nice to be with you. Thank you. You know, in, in so many ways, uh, the story that you told in The Missing Piece is a sad one. Uh, not entirely, but largely it's, it's about uh, missed opportunities. It's about the sides being out of sync. It's about reneging. It's about fecklessness. So here we are now at uh, 2014. Right. We have yet another administration right. making yet another valiant effort to uh, cut a peace deal between Palestinians and Israelis. Is there any good reason to believe that the story will have a happier ending this time around? Sometimes negotiations work because each side sees the cost of failure is so high that they just can't bear to face it. Mm. Sometimes negotiations work because the two sides have such an incentive to find a way to resolve their differences that they either will do it on their own or they're told to turn to someone else and say, look, help us. And sometimes the context of disbelief is so great that they want to show that they're making the effort, but they're more driven by a desire to look like they're making the effort and not be blamed than anything else. And I think today we don't have enough of the positive factors working to produce an outcome. And the negative factors, particularly the disbelief elements, uh, are are affecting this as much as anything at this point. But what about the, the consequences of failure? I mean, there is a consensus now that this is the last train out for a two-state uh, solution. And if it, doesn't, if it doesn't happen now, it's never going to happen. Do you, do you agree with that conventional wisdom? And if so, I mean, isn't that a huge cost to be paid if, if there's failure this time around? It, it could. You, you put it correctly. You said this conventional wisdom. Mm -hmm. now, sometimes conventional wisdoms are right, and sometimes they're not. I don't buy this conventional wisdom. You don't? No. I do think there's a cost if you miss the moment. I do think there's a moment, and I think there's a moment, ironically, because of everything else going on in the region. No one in the region is paying attention to this, and that actually creates a space for each side to do something. The problem, I think, though, with the conventional wisdom is that Fundamentally, it assumes, all right, if you miss this moment, that's it, never coming again. And it ignores a simple reality. The Israelis are not going anyplace, and the Palestinians are not going anyplace. So the notion that, oh, well, if you miss this moment, that's it, it's over, well, really? All right, just because you can't do it now, what is your answer to the fact you still have these two peoples? And you're not going to produce peace between them unless they have two states. The notion that there'll be a one-state outcome, and that will produce peace, is a complete illusion. These are 
two national identities, and they will never coexist in one state. But the settlements keep getting built, and is it going to be? Isn't with each passing year, and with each you know building project, right. doesn't isn't doesn't that make it harder? It does. It does. I'm not denying that it doesn't make it harder. It does make it harder. But if you were to ask the Palestinians how much territory do the settlements today, with the image that they're they're so enormous, ask the Palestinians how much territory do the settlements take up, and they'll tell you 1.9% of the West Bank. Now, 1.9% can't rule out an agreement. It's true there's a whole variety of other things that are done in the context of providing security for settlements, so separate roads for settlers. And, right. And these and settlements aren't contiguous, right? They're not contiguous. And they're being they're, built in places they farther are. and farther out from they are. The, the concentrated they are. areas. They are. And that, and that will make it more difficult for a lot of reasons. First, for one thing, mm-hmm. take the, the area of where the, the Israelis have built a barrier uh, to basically stop acts of terror, uh, stop bombings within, within Israel. Uh, and the fact is, that's built on about 8% of the West Bank. And so to the west of that, you have areas that are much more concentrated in terms of the size of settlements. But to put this in perspective, four settlements, four settlements constitute about 45% of the total settler population. There are 120 settlements overall. So it tells you there's a lot of a large number of small settlements and there's a smaller number of large settlements. The most concentrated settlements are to that west of that 8% area. Mm-hmm. In fact, you could capture about 80% of the settlers in about 5% of the West Bank. So one of the solutions for dealing with this problem is to say there'll be blocks and then there'll be territorial swaps as compensation for the blocks. Right. What is the problem with the larger number of small settlements is those Israelis who live basically to the east of the blocks, you know, what do you do with them? And their numbers are growing. That's right. And, and that is Yahoo is continuing to grow them, right? Right. It is, although if you look at the actual numbers, the vast majority of the building is taking place to the west of the 8%, to, to the west of the barrier. Most of the building is not taking place. The vast majority of the building is not taking place in these smaller settlements that are to the east of the barrier. From the Palestinians, they draw no distinction between the two. But in fact, there should be a distinction drawn between the two, precisely because if you talk about blocks and swaps, you know, if you were to work out the borders and you suddenly said, all right, this is what the, this is what the Israeli state's going to be, this is what the Palestinian state's going to be, you'd solve the settlement issue. Mm-hmm. Because once the settlements are part of Israel, meaning the, embodied within their state, and then you know that the building is only going to take place in what would be the Israeli state. One of the issues that I was getting at before about disbelief. For me, the Israelis have to address the Palestinian source of disbelief just the way the Palestinians have to address the Israeli source of disbelief. For the Palestinians, the Palestinians say, look, if you believe in two states, why are you building in ours? And the answer to that should be, we're not going to build in yours, we're only going to build in ours. And if Israel would build only within the blocks, and the Palestinians might say, well, we disagree on the size of the blocks, the answer to that is, all right, let's negotiate the size of the blocks. But if the Israelis would say, we're no longer going to build in what is what we think is going to be your state, we're only going to build in what we think should be our state, that would immediately change the context 
You talk about the cherished fantasies of both sides, yeah. which is really getting in the way of, of, of what you would like to see. I mean, you, call, right. them, you call them myths. I do. And, and uh, so talk a little bit about those myths and why they've been so difficult to overcome. You know, this, there's, a, there's a kind of new favorite term uh, in what I call the art of discussing international relations and how you deal with conflict issues. And the new uh, favorite term is narrative. Everybody's got their narrative. Right. So I'm not going to fight that term because it's, it's understood. Well, in essence, narrative is each side's story and what they tell themselves. And when you repeat it over and over and over again, it becomes sort of an intrinsic belief. That distorts reality or can distort reality. It does. Right? And that's what I, when I would talk about myths, I talk about here is a conflict where each side makes a set of assertions. They repeat the assertions. Uh, and then they come to believe the assertions. And so what isn't necessarily true is taken as a given. And it becomes very hard to question it. And that's what I mean by myths. And the myths that have developed over time make it harder and harder to try to resolve the conflict. Right. So the Palestinians have their own set of myths. The Israelis have their set of myths. Uh, and, and yet, you can't reconcile myths. You have to reconcile realities. And that's what I think has added to the difficulty of trying to resolve this conflict. So you, on the one hand, you have increasing disbelief, and on the other hand, you have each side increasingly wedded to a set of, of myths that have become very much in part of their own stories. So on the Palestinian side, it's the right of return. Yes. And that's the primary myth. Yes. And then on the Israeli side, an undivided Jerusalem and uh, uh, a, a, a presence in the Jordan Valley, a military presence. Well, I would say the issue of a presence in the Jordan Valley is one that should be, one ought to be able to deal with. The issue of Jerusalem is more complicated. Mm -hmm. I, my own view is Jerusalem shouldn't be divided again, but you need to have two capitals in it. There's no reason why you have to divide it, but you should have two capitals. And the idea that you know, that this is one city today, go to the Arab neighborhoods and compare them to the Jewish neighborhoods, and it's pretty clear it isn't one city. Right. So, and if you're, if you're an Israeli and you're concerned about the demographic trends, which in fact the Israelis are, including this Prime Minister, Prime Minister Netanyahu has said, we will not become a binational state. Now, when you say that, First of all, it obligates you to do something, because if you do nothing, you will become a binational state. And secondly, what it reflects is a concern about the demographic trends, that you're going to lose the Jewish character of the state, or you're going to lose what is a Zionist ethic. The premise of Zionism was to build a Jewish state that was democratic, mm -hmm. a Jewish democratic state. Now, if you lose the Jewish majority, you either can be, you either lose your Jewishness or you lose your democracy. Democracy. Yeah. So the point is, if you're going to be Jewish and democratic, then you can't stay exactly where you are. The reason I, I mention that in the context of Jerusalem, there's 300,000 Palestinians in Jerusalem. If you're concerned about demographics, why do you want to incorporate them into your state? And they're not living in mixed neighborhoods. They're living in their own neighborhoods. Now, right. the proximity is, is, you know, is very tight, but they're, they're basically they're separate neighborhoods. 
So you can, you can say, well, look, we won't divide the city again for practical terms, but there's no reason why you can't have two capitals there. And so so are, are you, is, but are you playing with the word divided? I mean, that's a loaded word. Well, I mean. it, well <laughs> it is. I, well, look, it's because from, 19, yeah. from 1949 to 1967, it was divided. Right. Jews could not go, Israelis could not go to their holy sites. They couldn't go to the, to the Man of Olives Cemetery. They couldn't go to the Western Wall, to the Wailing Wall. You know, they, they were cut off from what were the holiest sites uh, in the Jewish faith. And when, when I'm saying, you know, you're not going to divide it again, well, there are holy sites for Muslims. So if you're, t- if you're dealing in the old city, and you're talking about the Haram al-Sharif, where you have the Dome of the Rock and you have the Oska Mosque, well, you're not going to divide that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's what I mean by divide. You're gonna, you, there needs to be access. And it can't, you can't have... Each faith has to have access to their holy sites. Uh, and it's, it's just simpler to create a reality where you have... Maybe you have two capitals in what is... And each side is saying, this is Jerusalem. When you were talking to, say, Yasser Arafat or Benjamin Netanyahu, two of the more challenging people that you had to deal with over the course of your career, when they were at their most challenging, and I'm, I'm using a diplomatic word here. I can tell. <laughs> but uh, when they were at their most challenging, did you get the sense that they were behaving they were, the way they were behaving because they truly believed these myths that you're talking about? Or was it because they, A, lacked the courage or B, lack the political capital to overcome them? I wouldn't equate the two of them in the following sense. Yeah. Arafat was someone who would make things up, repeat what he made up, and then believe what he made up. <laughs> and that's just, that defined who he was. I mean, we, you know, after the... Is that because he managed to convince himself or because he was just repeating what he had made up? Well, no, he, I, he did convince himself. Okay. I mean, he lived, in many ways... He lived frequently in a world of his own making. I mean, it, it's, it shouldn't be surprising because uh, the PLO, over a period of time, developed an image of itself that was based not on reality. You know, here was, when they were trying to establish, uh, they, unlike the Arabs after 67, under the, uh, unlike the Arab states, they would resist and they would be successful. And they would make these wild claims. And it was part of who they were to make wild claims, but then they believed their own wild claims. You know, they, they claimed when Eshkol died from a heart attack that they killed him. <laughs> when, uh, when Moshe Dayan suffered an accident uh, at a dig, they claimed they were responsible for it. Mm-hmm. They were constantly, to, to try to put themselves on the map, they made these wild claims. But then making wild claims became part of who they were. Mm-hmm. Instead of building a movement based on reality, based on facts, they built it based on myths, based on wild claims. And he, that became part of who he was. And, and there was true conviction behind that. It wasn't just well, an artifice as far as it was an art. It began as an artifice. But the problem is when you keep repeating the same thing, you it come to believe it. It becomes a reality. Yes. Yeah. You, you come yeah. to believe it. Yeah. You know, the first time I met Arafat after the, the first uh, terrorist act that had taken place, that we launched Oslo, and the first time there was a, a bombing. And I went in and I saw him and I said, look, you have to act against this. And he leans over to me and he shakes his finger and he says, this was a secret cell within the IDF that did it. And I said to him, that's absurd. I said, if you repeat those kinds of things to me, I'll know you're not a serious person to deal with. Mm -hmm. 
when we were at Camp David, he says to the President of the United States that the temple doesn't exist in Jerusalem. Right. You know, <laughs> and this is something, he would make these wild claims. And because he would repeat them, and he would repeat them to everyone, he, you know, he would then come to believe it. Yeah. So he was not like any other leader I dealt with. Other leaders might say things that they felt, you know, served a political need. And it isn't to say that the political need wasn't real. The political need might be real. You know, if you ask me about any Israeli prime minister, Prime Minister Netanyahu or Rabin or Barack uh, or Paris or Sharon, Jerusalem was a, a highly emotional issue. They weren't making it up. It was a highly emotional issue. And it was the division from 49 to 67 that makes it so difficult for them to contemplate anything that would look like Israel was giving up any of it because that image of being divided again, of being cut off of the barbed wire, is what is prominent in the psychology of Israelis, and it's completely understandable. And I'll tell you another story. In the first war, in the War of Independence for Israel, uh, when Egypt, when the Egyptians invaded, and they're coming out of Gaza and they're heading up the road, they get past Yad Mordechai, which is a, uh, one of the, the kibbutzim that was right near the border. Uh, and uh, Yigal Yadin, who was uh, chief of staff of the new IDF, he brings together all the chiefs of staff, and the Egyptian army is headed up, it's headed towards Tel Aviv. And so they get together with Ben-Gurion, and they say, look, we have to marshal all the forces to stop the Egyptians from getting to Tel Aviv. And that means there's one brigade that was, that was fighting and defending Jerusalem. Uh, and they say to Ben-Gurion, you have to commit that brigade to the defense of Tel Aviv. And he says to them, no, because if we don't have Jerusalem, we don't have a state, we don't have Israel. Hmm. So the emotional connection to Jerusalem is embedded in the psychology. This goes beyond the narrative. This is part of the identity. Uh, and so when you're dealing with an issue that is that deep, that profound, then obviously it's very hard to find ways to break through. But couldn't you say that the right of return for the Palestinians is just as deep and just as profound? It is. What was the PLO founded on? That's exactly what the PLO was founded on. Yeah. It was the animating myth right. of the Palestinian national movement, the right of return. Right. So both of these things are myths, though. I would say, yes. What I'm, I call these the narrative issues. If, when I look yeah. at security and I look at borders, those are technical issues. Hard, real, tangible, but not psychological yeah. and emotional the same way. And so in your role, did you see your role as trying to talk these sides out of these very emotional convictions? I mean, is that, was that your role? My role was to sort of take the emotional issues and to see how we could begin to disaggregate them, how we could adopt a this practical This is a little bit like therapy. You know, I'll tell you, it's, it's a funny story. Um, when I was touring with the, with the missing piece, yeah. uh, and I, did, I, went, I, made a lot of, I did a lot of talks around the country, almost every time uh, at the end of a talk, I'd have psychologists or psychiatrists come up to me and they would say, so you had a lot of psychological training, didn't you? Yeah. And I would say, no. <laughs> but it, it was 
you're dealing with people, uh, and and you're trying to figure out, all right, what is it that drives you? You know, one of the things I've said oftentimes when I talk about mediation or negotiation, the the hardest thing to do in a mediation is to get each side to recognize if they want their needs addressed, they have to address the other side's needs. And so, so much of what I did, I would describe as a kind of educational process. Or couples therapy, perhaps. Well, it could be. I've actually had. I mean, I do have some friends who are psychiatrists who actually do a lot of that, who are therapists. Yeah. And we've talked about the similarities Uh that are involved. I mean, in the... In what I was trying to do, and in a lot of ways still try to do, is say, all right, look, we need to address what's important to you. And part of getting at that is what, peop- what is needed, not what they want. When you're trying to resolve conflicts, you're reconciling needs, you're not reconciling desires or wants. So the first thing to do is to try to figure out the way to break through and understand what is it that's really needed. So a lot, of, a lot of what you do in this role is to ask a lot of questions. Not, you know, the minute you look like you're trying to plumb for information, people clam up. Right. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to say, look, I, I want to understand why something is so important to you. Please explain that to me. And it's a, it's a way of showing genuine curiosity. By the way, it was real in my case. I was genuinely trying to understand what is it mm-hmm. that is so critical here? Explain it to me. And the more I could understand that, then I'd be in a position to say, all right, now I know what we have to address on this side. And, and then, and this is what you, you have to do as a mediator, you have to constantly repeat that, that you understand that. You have to constantly repeat, almost make the argument. You make one side's argument to them, and you do it repeatedly so they see... You actually get it. Because the moment you want to start talking about the other side, they're going to say, oh, no, but you don't understand my needs. Mm. And so you have to prove that you understand the needs. And then you have to say, look, if we're going to achieve that, there's simply no way to achieve that unless the other side's needs are also addressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you begin to talk about the other side's needs. And this is, on the big issues, you, you, you have to spend an awful lot of time you know, the word painstaking almost understates it because the, to prove that you really get what's important to one side, you have to spend so much time talking about it, yeah. letting them talk about it, having you repeat it. And only at that point do you begin to then say, all right, let's, let's, what do you think they need? Now, are these people on a couch when you're doing this? Not typically, <laughs> although well, oftentimes I was. Yeah. <laughs> well, let, let me pose a hypothetical to you that I think will sound painfully familiar. Let's say you have two sides in a room. They've been at odds with each other for a very long time. Uh, they don't trust each other, and they probably don't like each other. But yeah. more importantly, neither side wants to be the first to propose any major concessions out of a fear that the other side will simply pocket those uh, concessions and then use them as uh, the starting point for whatever negotiations follow. As a mediator, how do you break through that? First, I mean, I can only, when you said painfully familiar, 
It is. It's. It, it literally. It's endemic. It is literally endemic. That's the essence of what you're always dealing with. It's through the, the eight, those 800 pages that you wrote uh, in that book. Uh, it's filled with that. Well, because that's exactly. There's a constant sense. Yeah. Of first, if I if I look too eager, the other side will sit back and do nothing. If I give this, they'll pocket it, and it's a new starting point. Right. Uh, if I look like I'm weak, then they'll exploit me. And so, you know, this is actually the context in which you're trying to do it. All right, so you're asking the, the basic question, how do you, how do you break how do you through it? it? Well, there's, there's different, different techniques that you can use. I mean, one technique is to offer or suggest parallel moves, simultaneous moves. You know, come up with ideas for each side and say, look, if you would be prepared to do this, and this is based, again, you have to spend all this time drawing each side out on what really matters to them, uh, and then you focus on what could be a set of simultaneous or parale- parallel moves that could, be, that could be taken. That's probably the best way to do it, because then one side's not making the first move. I mean, a, a corollary to this would be to make a proposal. You make a proposal, so it's not theirs. Mm-hmm. But here again, when you're making the proposal, you're making a proposal for mutual steps. Now then the question becomes, all right, maybe they're simultaneous, maybe they're parallel, but are they equal? And then, then you get into discussion of, well, but I'm giving up more. They're giving up less. Well, is this all couched in hypotheticals? It can be. Uh-huh. Sometimes that's what you do. You say, look, what if we were to do the following? And sometimes you do that as a way of testing what the reaction is. I once explained to a a Secretary of State here, in dealing uh, in this part of the world, I said, look, bear in mind the following. You don't take no for an answer. This person said to me, what do you mean you don't take no for an answer? I said, well, first you have to understand. The first no is just a reflex. Doesn't matter what you're suggesting, the answer is no. The second no is to test you. Do you really care about this? Is this important to you? The third no is, all right, now we're bargaining. And then the fourth no may still be bargaining. And I said sometimes the fourth or fifth no is a real no. <laughs> but you can't, you, if you back off too quickly with something, then they've tested you. They've made a judgment about you. In your book, you write, quote, every negotiation is about manipulation, with each side trying to convince the other side that its red lines are truly red, while the others are simply pink. So does that mean to be an effective negotiator, you have to be deceitful? You know, it means that, I wouldn't say deceitful, but I would say you constantly are holding back in negotiations mm-hmm. for the reasons we were talking about before. Nobody right. wants to look like they're too eager. Nobody wants to be the first to be making concessions. Right. And so you're, you're trying to create a set of impressions about what you can do and what you can't do. And a lot of that is building up what, in fact, are not genuine impressions about how far you're prepared to go. So you're, you're hiding. There's a difference between being... Deceit is being dishonest. Yeah. Hiding is protecting. 
And in the in the end, the reason. Got, but you have to look like you're not hiding when you're hiding, right? Well, you, you have to. That's be, where the deceit. Well, that's where the manipulation comes in. <laughs> okay. That's the issue. I mean, yeah. I used I did I use the term deliberately, but yeah. it is a manipulation. Yeah. You're trying to manipulate manipulate the images of the other side. Okay. And in effect, the reason I use the word, the word manipulation, not deceit, is because you can't be dishonest in a negotiation. Because mm. the other point I was making is there comes a crunch point where when you say to the other side, I really can do this, but I can't do that, they have to believe that. If they think you're engaging in a process of, dis- of deceit, they're never going to believe yeah. what you're saying when, when they need to believe it. You, you use that word manipulation, but then almost in the next sentence you say that there needs to be trust. Right. And so how does manipulation at the same time live with trust? Really hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, because I think here's what I, what I suggest is the following, and what I have suggested is the way you reconcile these two, you have to, first of all, you make certain promises during the course of a negotiation, and you always have to deliver on your promises. This is one of the ways you build a relationship and you show you can be counted on. Second thing, you never bluff in a negotiation. Because if you bluff, that's again, that's part of it's It's not real. What you're doing has to have a certain reality to it. Uh, the third thing is, at certain points, be prepared to do things that the other side knows are hard for you. And you establish the issues that you can do. You, be, you begin a process where you're trying to show the things that really matter to you. Uh, and you, at the same time, you know, you are highlighting what may be possible but really hard. And there come certain points where you make a decision, all right, I'm going to do something that's hard for me. These, are, these are very fine lines. They are they? very fine lines. Yeah. You're exactly right. They're very fine lines. Yeah. And, by the way, having a sense of timing. When's the right moment to do that? You know, it's a, I teach this as well, and I teach my students. You know, I can give you a checklist of things to do, but judgment and instinct come in. You have to read the other side. In a negotiation or mediation, one of the most important things, one of the most important attributes is being a good listener. Mm-hmm. You know, you learn a lot more when you're listening than when you're talking. Mm-hmm. And you have to hear when someone's signaling you. And oftentimes the signals are subtle. And they're subtle because, you know, you're testing, well, is the other side ready? And if you, if you do something that's too blunt, it looks like you're too eager. Yeah. So you have to be subtle. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, and this may not seem like such a subtle example, but, I, but I'll, uh, I'll explain it. When we were, uh, this was in, uh, this was in December of 1999. We had been trying to work out uh, getting a Syrian-Israeli negotiation going. We had had some back-channel stuff. We'd had some discreet talks, uh, and then the foreign minister of Syria suffered an illness and was out of the picture. And and Assad, unbeknownst to us at the time, was in a hurry, but we didn't know it. And so we had we were going into Damascus, uh, and uh, and Assad had written us a letter that looked like a retreat. And so I was there with Secretary Albright, and I had written up a set of points for her to use in the meeting. And so she started off using the points, 
and said to Assad, you know, we didn't understand your letter. It looked like it was a retreat. And he says, no. And then he casually just sort of said, I've never imposed conditions on negotiations. Just sort of saying it matter-of-factly and casually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the truth is, he'd always imposed conditions on negotiations. It was like he was just trying to slip that by. And Madeline was going to go to the next point, and I said, excuse me, um, can we have a break for a minute? And he, Assad looks at me like, what's going on? And Madeline looks at me like, what's going on? And I said, just, just, we just need a minute. And so I, and Madeline and I walked to the, we were in his mm-hmm. big, he had a palace where we were meeting, and we, were, we walked to the back of the hall. And Madeline says to me, what's going on? And I said, look, he just said, like it was no big deal, that he never imposes conditions on negotiations. He's always imposed conditions on negotiations. Why don't you go back and say to him, look, since, you've never, since there's no conditions on negotiations, let's agree right now that we're going to resume. And she said to me, are you sure? I said, no, I'm not sure. <laughs> but I said, you know, that's a very unusual thing for him to say. Yeah. Now, maybe, maybe he was misspeaking. Yes. And if he was misspeaking, we'll just go back to your point. But if this was a signal to us, let's, let's try to grab it. Jiguet said to me, are you sure? I said, and I again said, no, I'm not sure. Yeah. But I said, test it. So she goes back and she does that, and he goes, okay. So now I leaped in, and I said, okay, since we've agreed to resume, let's raise them to the political level. And Shara, who just returned from being ill, I thought was going to be ill again, because he leaped in and said, now wait a second. And Assad says, no, okay. Hmm. Now, was he sending a signal? Obviously he was. Had we not picked up on it, what would these talks have been that day? Because Shara clearly was not in favor of doing this, but Assad decided to do it. Now, maybe he would have done it anyway, but maybe not. Because oftentimes in a negotiation... But you could have easily missed it. I could have missed it. And so what's it in for him, for Assad in that situation, to be so subtle, to just kind of... Uh, and just because a, such an offhanded remark. Let's say that he wants to test us and the Israelis, but he doesn't want to expose himself in the same moment. He doesn't want to look like he's too eager. Mm-hmm. I mean, he literally said this like in an offhanded way. Uh-huh. And I could have missed it. But that's why I say you need to listen very carefully. Uh, he once said to me, you never miss a thing. And I, and I said to him, I've just been dealing with you for a long time. He says, no, you never miss a thing. I said, well, I've learned with you, Mr. President, that one has to listen very carefully to every word. And then he, you know, he wanted to make his point. He wanted me to accept his point. So he said it again. So I said, yeah. okay, you're right. I don't miss a thing. Right, I remember that. I, I remember another uh, uh, passage from your uh, book, The Missing Piece, that struck me as um, rather odd. This was a conversation about Assad's um, interest in maintaining bladder control. Do you know what I'm talking <laughs> yes, about? Yes, I do. I do uh, know what you're talking it about. Was a, it was very much a point of pride for him. That's right. That no matter how long a meeting went, 
he would not get up to go to the bathroom. And, right. and you felt kind of compelled to compete with him on this yes. score. You said to him, uh, quote, Mr. President, have you ever noticed in all of our meetings, regardless of how long they run, that I have never gotten up and had to leave the room? And then you continued, it is not because I have never had to go to the bathroom. It is just that I have an iron will. And then you said he nodded approvingly. You know, I thought that was a humorous exchange, uh, but I have to say I also thought it was a tad unsettling. And let me tell you what I, why, why I feel that way. And it's because, you know, there's a lot at stake in these meetings. The lives of thousands, maybe millions of people are at stake, the fate of nations. And yet it seems that, you know, that, that what happens, you know, is determined by whether a group of alpha males, and let's, let's face it, they're usually all guys can uh, impress each other right. on you know in ways that to an outsider might seem just more than a little silly <laughs> <laughs> well a it was a humorous exchange but you yeah. also but you also were right i was making a point now this was the first time this meeting was i had just been made our envoy and i this was in the clinton administration and i he knew me from being with Baker. So different administration mm -hmm. and a different role. Now I'm, I'm the American envoy. And I needed at a certain point to establish certain realities with him. Right. That, look, I've got I understand a strong who you are. Too. <laughs> so I have a strong bladder. But the, the, the deeper point was, you know, he engaged in negotiations as a war of attrition. And I wanted him to know, look, whatever it is, I got a lot of patience. I can do this as long as you can do it. Uh, and don't think I'm going to concede anything easily either. You know, I know who you are, but you need to know who I am. You knew me before as Baker's aide. Now you know that I'm going to be negotiating with you. And I'm just establishing yeah. who I am with you. If this had not been the first meeting where I had a different kind of role, I probably wouldn't have made that point. But I need, I was looking for an opportunity to convey something to him to say, okay, the relationship's different now. Yeah. I mean, and it was, a, it was an easy way to do it in a way that he would appreciate. But, but what it also conveyed to me is, in a very interesting way, was that these leaders, I mean, they're people, they're human beings, Absolutely. and they have egos, Absolutely. and they have psychological needs, but that there's, it, it seems to me there's this, um, there's this disconnect off, uh, too often between their psychological needs and the needs of the people they represent. That's true. Fair enough? Absolutely. Now, look... I was I was dealing with someone. Was he democratically elected? Mm -hmm. No. He was a he was an autocrat. Uh, mm -hmm. He could make decisions for all of them. And you know, look, every leader is in a position. Even democratically elected ones, those who are autocrats operate in a different setting. Those who are democratically elected have to respond in certain ways. When I was describing Clinton and Barack, yeah. Clinton was heavily focused on the democratic realities of Israel. And he looked at Arafat, and he didn't look at Arafat the same way. You're right. Everyone, each of these leaders, at the end of the day, they're still a human being. And they're, 
complex and they emerge from different circumstances and they're operating you know in a psychological reality and you're you know part of being a negotiator and mediator is also reading them reading who they are what drives them how they'll read you how to affect them how to you're constantly trying to to affect their calculus and there's a lot of different ways to do it you know, in these uh, very stressful, high-stakes negotiations, how much swearing goes on? <laughs> um, you know the Nixon tapes? Yes. <laughs> I know them well. well is, it, is it at that level? They're certainly at a comparable... Yeah. Really? Yeah. Really? It depends. I mean, in certain moments, absolutely. I would say it, it's much more prominent in the preparations on each side. When the two get together, there's much less. There's very little of it, in truth. Because with each other, they, you know, key leaders won't tend to do that. Yeah. But, you know, when we were, if I would be sitting with, you know, with the president beforehand and going through, right, here's, this is going to be a tough meeting. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't be doing it, but I can assure you that everybody else in the room uh -huh. would be doing it. If you'd had a tape in for those... Uh, they would make Nixon look like he was a choir boy. Really? Wow. Wow. Well, let's talk about anger, which is, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, you know uh, associated, can be associated with swearing. You, in, in your book, Statecraft, you talk about how this used judiciously right. can uh, be effective, gets people's attention. Right. And uh, you recount how Bi Bill Clinton uh, had at least one very ex angry exchange with Ehud Barak at Camp David. Mm -hmm. You've had at least a couple angry exchanges with Netanyahu, but the most interesting angry exchange you've had that you write about is with Arafat, right. where you got a little physical. Yeah. D describe that. Well, this was a... Um, I had been out... I said I had two 23-day shuttles. Well, this was the second one. And I was about... I was, I think, on, on day 16. And I told Arafat we were in Bethlehem and it was late at night. And I said, look, I'm, I can't just stay out here. I'm not going to waste my time. Uh, and I said, you want me to do help you reach a deal? I'm ready to do it. But I'm not just going to spin my wheels. So I said, you know, tell me what you need, and I'll try to get it for you. And suddenly, uncharacteristically, he ticks off six things that he needs right. in a systematic, very clear way. So I said, okay. And I go and I spend, you know, this was like midnight, and I go and spend till almost five in the morning with Netanyahu, and I get him each of the things that he needs. I can't see him again until that night in Gaza. I come down to see him, and I know now it's Arafat. So I, I go in, and I'm already uh, assuming I'm not taking anything as a given. So I've got six items that he's asked for. I start with the least important first, just because I have to protect myself. And so I, I mention the first item, and he dismisses it. I said, all right, well, I'll try one more. I try the second least important one. He does the same thing. So now I closed my notebook and I said, look, last night you asked, I said, what does it take for you to do this? You gave me six items. I've worked on those. I was ready to deliver for you. Now you're telling me they mean nothing. Uh, and he goes, I didn't say that. I said, you didn't say what? I said, I didn't give you these things. I didn't ask for these things. I said, this is exactly what you asked for last night. And he, has, he always used to keep something in his, he always used to keep a little 
piece of paper in his pocket, like where he took his own notes. He pulls out, says, I didn't, he looks at his thing, like again, he's making it up, says, I didn't ask for that. And I said, that's exactly what you asked for. He said, are you calling me a liar? And I said, I'm just describing what happened. He says, are you calling me a liar? I said, I'm explaining exactly what we did last night. Yes, again, are you calling me a liar? I uh, said, and our voice is being raised at yes, this point? They're, yeah. they're not quite as calm as I'm describing. Yes. <laughs> and so the, so the third time when he says, are you calling me a liar, I said, if the shoe fits. I stood up, and it's just, a, you know, it's just the two of us, and we have an, my Gamal Halal, who serves as an interpreter, but this was actually being done all in English. Right. Uh, which was also an indication that you know he was playing a game. So I get up and and I we're in his office in uh, in his in Gaza. I get up and I turn around. And I walk and there's a double door that separates the where we usually would eat. And so my delegation and his delegation are all out there. They're all having a good time because they assume this is going to be a good meeting. I fling the doors open and I have a. I have a binder that I always carry with me, and I take all my notes and so forth. Uh, and and I fling the doors open, and I take my binder, and I throw it across the room just like that. Now, if I tried 15 times, I could not have hit that pitcher of grapefruit juice, mm-hmm. if I was trying. But I hit the pitcher of grapefruit juice flush, it just exploded. Yeah. Uh, and everybody is, like, shocked. Are the security guys running at this well, point? Yeah, at this point, I there's mean, like everybody's does, does anyone have their, a gun? <laughs> their their Uzi out? Or no, I didn't get that far. I didn't get that far. But yeah. so, and everyone's just like, "What's going on? What's happening? What's happening?" And I said, "I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm done." Wow. Uh, and so I'm, and I'm, I'm. The truth is, I'm angry. I didn't mean to hit the grapefruit juice. I meant to sort of. I was trying to demonstrate that I was angry. And that's why I threw the notebook. Uh, and so this became like, for the next hour, there were people going back and forth between the two of us, the Palestinians were saying, he loves you, it's just a misunderstanding. And I'm going, no misunderstanding. Mm. I said, I'm not, you know, if he tells me that what he s- said to me is what is the case, I will continue. And if he doesn't, I'm not continuing. So at the end of the evening, he, you know, they say, he, you know, he wants to apologize to you. And I said, does he want to apologize and tell me that uh, what he said was wrong? I said, no, he just wants to apologize. I said, I'm not going to see him. Hmm. So I left. I didn't go back and see him. Now, subsequently, we found out something, that the Egyptians had put pressure on him not to close. Uh Uh, I learned this only later. Uh, And uh, and it's what I did once I, and I learned that, but I, I learned it out the next day. Uh, and and so what I did at that point was I was prepared to see him again, but I decided, look, we need a new factor in the equation, and that's I called King Hussein and asked if he would come. I said, look, I think we can get this done, but, but I think he's under pressure from the Egyptians, and I want to show there's an alternative for him. So King Hussein came. That allowed us to have meetings again, and we then finished. Yeah. Not a writer. It, t- it still took us six days to finish, but... The anger was real. Right. So, so, which I think, in my mind, begs the question, when you talk of anger, you say that it can be useful as long as you don't lose control. When you were in the, you know, in the process of throwing that binder across the room, can you say in all honesty that you were 
entirely in control? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I mean, that's uh, what I, you know, anger is a, first of all, anger for someone like me, who's typically controlled, yeah. is highly useful because it's out of character. You know, Dick Holbrook would be angry all the time. So if you're angry all the time, it loses its weight. Warren Christopher was never angry. And uh, one time in a negotiation with, with Assad, when we were, this was at the, in 1996, when we were brokering a ceasefire between mm-hmm. Israel and Hezbollah, mm-hmm. and we, had, we thought we had an agreement on everything. We were back in Damascus to finalize it with him, and suddenly he introduced a new issue. And Christopher, who was quiet, always in control, didn't, didn't get angry or upset in a demonstrative way, but suddenly he took his, he had a notebook, he closed it, he lifted up his briefcase, put his notebook in it, closed it, stood up, started in a fastidious way buttoning his coat, mm-hmm. and, and he was done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Assad says to me, what's he doing? And I said, he's leaving. And he says, why? I said, because you opened up a new issue, and he's done. Mm-hmm. And then this was, I wasn't yelling, I was doing, I was being at the same level as, as Christopher was. And, and Assad says to me, but I'm just negotiating. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I said, but not with him. And so he says, tell him, even though he's in the new show, he yeah. says, yeah, yeah. tell him, okay, that's not a, it's not a new issue, we're agreed. Yeah. And that was it. But it was, you know, he read Christopher. This was so out of character for Christopher. Even though he didn't raise his voice, but it was just a demonstration. And so anger can be a very powerful tool, and it can, and it can work effectively if it's typically not who you are. Now, it can be someone like Baker would get angry. He would typically be controlled. When he would get angry, he would erupt. Yeah. He'd be Vesuvius. And, and Clinton was that way as Clinton well. Clinton would too. Yeah. Clinton would too. Yeah. But Clinton would feel badly about it after he did it. Yeah. Baker wouldn't feel badly after he did uh-huh. it. Baker would, you know, it was, with, with Baker was also highly calculated. It was real. You can't make it up. But I, what I was saying, you asked about me. In my case, I will say, you know, typically I would do it when I was really tired. It would be calculated. But because I was really tired... It would always. I'd, it wouldn't be done within a, with a measure of control the way I intended. Let me ask you about the good cop, bad cop strategy. Yeah. Oldest trick in the book, right? Yeah. Uh, it was used at Camp David. In, in that situation, you were the bad cop, and President Clinton was, was the good, good cop. You yeah. you had you, you thought that that was not optimal. Uh, that would have been better if Bill Clinton played right. the, the bad cop. But he was, you know, he was not a, good at tough love. He was much better at empathy. Right. Uh, it's been suggested in the New York Times that now uh, Kerry and Obama are playing that sort of game a little bit, although Obama's being the tough cop uh, and Kerry the good cop. Uh, But, you know, it is the oldest trick in the book, and you're dealing with sophisticated people, but it still works? Well, you know, it gets back to one of the earlier questions. Yeah. You know, these are still people. Mm -hmm. They still have real emotions. They still have, they still desire, you know, certain kind of relationships. 
And there's someone who they also have to feel is always in their corner. So it's, you know, if you do it too overtly, it's obvious. But to the extent to which you, you have someone who a leader can feel is always in their corner, that is still something that's useful because maybe there isn't someone else. They read someone else as not being in their corner for real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you do want to help those who are your friends. You know, if you're, and if you say to them, look, you know I got a problem in terms of trying to, to deal with this. You know it's not so simple for me to deliver. Here's what I, you know, help me to help you. And, you know, it's not, it can still feel like it's a manipulation. Yeah. And it will only go so far. If it if it's feels like it's a manipulation, then it's, it's unlikely to work. If it's genuinely believable, yeah. and oftentimes there's a reason it's genuinely believable, not because it's a, an act, but because there is a dynamic that's real. So it's not like, you know, the George Burns line about sincerity, you know, the most important thing in life and sincerity is, is sincerity, and if you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> it's, it, is, it, is, is it like that? I would say, it's, I would say there's something, sometimes there's genuine differences on our side. Yeah, uh, and and it's not that you're creating. It's not that you're trying to do good cop, bad cop. It's that the reality creates someone who's more sympathetic and someone who's less sympathetic. Uh, and if the context creates that, and so it's, it's almost like an, an organic thing. Yes, it is organic. Yeah, oftentimes it is. Yeah, I mean, look, I think between between Clinton and me, it was. It was it was probably largely organic. What made it he I described him as someone who no one could be as empathetic as he was. And the reason he was so good at it, first it was genuine, mm-hmm. and secondly because he really could understand every issue. And because he could understand it and he could understand it from someone else's standpoint, he could present himself in a way that was completely plausible. Mm-hmm. Now him, it was much harder for him to do the tough love side of things because it wasn't it wasn't authentic. And that's and as, as a negotiator, as a mediator, you have to be authentic. You have to be who you are. That's what makes you believable. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think the good cop bad cop works if it's organic. It's less likely to work if it looks like it's it's a manipulation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Last question. Uh, with all of this extraordinary experience you've had as a mediator, as a negotiator, how much of an advantage is that when you're at home dealing with your wife and your kids and your extended family? I was once asked by Oprah Magazine, <laughs> do, I, do I bring my negotiating skills home with me? I'm competing with Oprah. That's, That's very a, unsettling a, to me. Well, it's a, it, it could cut both ways. <laughs> um, and and I said, uh, do you bring? The, I was asked, do you bring these techniques home with you? Yeah. I said, with my wife, absolutely. I simply engage in preemptive surrender. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very good. Ambassador, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.